Hi, I'm Libby. And I'm Farron. And this is the tip of the iceberg. It's not about what I believe to be right or wrong. something a little bit controversial um but something that impacts the work we do a lot um we we talk all the time when I was in school we talked all the time about how policies and laws impacted the work we do because like we typically a lot of the work we do is working one-on-one with clients and so you'd think like this doesn't really matter as much what's happening nationally it doesn't impact how I work with you one-on-one if you're a survivor of domestic violence right I think a lot of people feel that way Um, But once you get into the work a little bit, you realize that the laws that we have completely decide how we work with clients and and what aid we can provide them, right? Yeah, and what barriers they face in their own lives, even outside of receiving services. Right. So you always, like, you think about these laws in terms of, like, how they affect you and your family and, you know, sure, but also how they affect humanity because that's what you're seeing is the worst of humanity. Every day in your work as a domestic violence professional, right? And and the best of humanity in your clients. But, you know, sometimes, I mean, we see a lot of terrible things. And and policies and and laws really do impact those. So we very frequently have to stay up to date with housing laws and different welfare systems that are going on Mm -hmm. and social laws and, and all these different reform movements. They impact a great deal how we do our work and something that's been talked about a lot right now and is super controversial, but it's kind of everywhere right now is abortion laws. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to talk a little bit about abortion laws, um, but in the context of how they impact our work, because everyone has different views on this topic. Everyone has uh, different beliefs. And to be honest, there are three people sitting around this table right now and I would bet my job on the fact that the three of us look at this differently. Like we all have different views on this. Some things we will align in and some things we won't. Um, But that doesn't change the fact that we have to navigate it while we do our work. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to try our best to leave our personal opinions kind of out the door and focus on what we're seeing professionally when we navigate these things and, and what that means for us as domestic violence and sexual assault advocates. Right. Did I do that right? Yeah, you did great. Yes. You did great. So, obviously, this is Libby. As you have my voice memorized, you've heard Farron a little bit, but we also have one of our favorite guests on today as well. Brittany. Hello. (laughs) Yes, Brittany is back. Um, You probably remember her from her Survivor story, as well as um, for her expertise with the Game of Thrones um, podcast as well, and she's back a little bit to help us discuss what we're seeing with our clients and and how the new abortion laws will influence our work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I, I think it was, we were a little bit nervous to do a podcast about abortion because it is such a controversial topic and everybody has an opinion Mm -hmm. and you know, the circumstances surrounding a person's process and choosing an abortion or not choosing an abortion are, so different and so unique and so like it's really important that like Libby said we it's not about what I believe Mm -hmm. to be right or wrong with abortion um but I think it's really important 
as a domestic violence and sexual assault professional that I talk about um, the facts about these laws that how they'll impact survivors. Yeah, so know as you're going into this podcast that this is not uh, a pro-life or a pro-choice argument. This is what does this look like in real life and what is the application of these things. Sure. So it's not it's not about sides in any means. It's just about what is what does this look like for our clients. And I think that when I have this conversation with other people, and I'll be honest, I try and avoid it because I just don't like getting in arguments about this kind of a thing. Um, but I think that as professionals in this field, we have different perspectives on this than other people. Because I I it just looks so much different differently in application than it does theoretically. Like all of these conversations are really good to have when you're talking theoretically, like this is what I believe and this is what is right and this is and that's so true. If you believe that, that's great, but it doesn't change the fact that that the laws that we're passing and and the things that that are being put into motion here have practical applications that we see and we're gonna continue to see. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 So for me, it goes beyond just like women have a right to choose because we have a right to our own body, right? Like that's an argument that a lot of women have my body, my choice. All of that aside, the bottom line is we know that reproductive coercion exists in violent relationships and that a lot of women who are in domestic violence situations with batterers do not have the choice about birth control and um, when they want to have sex, how they want to have sex. And so there are situations in which those women do end up getting pregnant by their abuser and they don't want to have a baby with him because they know that he's dangerous and they know that if they have a child together that it will forever bind them together. Mm-hmm maybe not in a, in an intimate relationship, but they share a child. Right. And the courts most often, I mean, give abusers rights to their children. And so that's going to involve her having a connection with him. Well, and even regardless of the connection or, or whatever the courts decide, it just, it ups your, that's what I was getting at. It's like it, it increases the likelihood that, Violence will continue and that homicide could, could happen. Well, yeah. and, and sometimes, like, they may make the decision, you know, supposedly together to have the child and then they, the real physical abuse doesn't start until she's actually pregnant. And so not being able to, you know, change her mind, you know, at, at any point during the pregnancy um, can really lock somebody into a relationship you know, when they've actually just recently found out that it is at least physically abusive. Yeah, so I, I think that when we're talking about abortion laws, and so recently, if you've watched the news or listened to NPR or anything like that, you've heard all of the anti-abortion legislation that's been happening across the United States. Um, the most recent famous was Alabama that mm-hmm. um, made abortion illegal um I think at any point or after I want to make sure that I have it correct I have it pulled up on my laptop um but it even criminalizes doctors if they provide abortions they can spend up to like 99 years in prison for providing an abortion um 
and it's the most stringent law in the country. So it's at any stage of a pregnancy with no exceptions for sexual assault or incest, which we will talk about in this podcast anyway. Um, and I'm just curious, anti-abortion legislation hasn't been introduced in Wyoming yet, um, but I am curious how state domestic violence and sexual assault coalitions are approaching this topic. Mm-hmm. I don't know that. Um, because there are real-life implications for women who are in unsafe situations in domestic violence situations, if they cannot access those services, what does that look like? Because the number one cause of death, one of the number one causes of death for pregnant women is homicide, um, intimate partner violence after like motor vehicle accidents. But it's my guess that when most people are having this discussion or this dialogue or trying to figure out what they believe in their head, that this, this doesn't even pop up. I think that so many people don't even consider violence when they're talking about abortion. And so that, I mean, it makes more sense to me it, why there's, why it seems a little black and white to some people because they don't introduce these areas of gray or don't have access to these areas of gray that are sexual assault and domestic violence. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. And I think that the normal, like a normal person who hasn't been in a domestic violence relationship or who hasn't been a domestic violence professional wouldn't think. Right. I mean, before I was an advocate at SAFE, I never really thought about these laws impacting DV Mm -hmm. victims. However, that's why it's our job as program directors who can lobby and state coalitions who can lobby to talk to legislators about those real life implications because those people probably haven't thought of that either. And I don't know if that hasn't happened. It's not fair for me to say that it hasn't. I'm just curious if those conversations are being had at a state level with lawmakers. Well, and so that's the difference between domestic violence and sexual assault in this situation because sexual assault and the impact of these laws on victims of sexual assault has been talked about because the law specifically mentions, you know, either including um, or excluding that as an, you know, in in quotations, excuse to get an abortion um, as far as, you know, if if the pregnancy is a result of of rape. Um, So that's been talked about, but no mention in the media you know, social media or the news about whether, you know, there's going to be exclusions in those laws for victims of domestic violence. Right. And I think it's fair also to bring into this conversation what we see happening with reproductive abuse in relationships. Because I think that's, when I first started doing this work, that's something I hadn't thought about. Mm -hmm. I, I hadn't thought about. And we've talked briefly about sexual assault in the context of domestic violence. But I think it goes... Further than that, when we're talking about abuse that has to deal with or could result in pregnancy when in the context of a domestic violence relationship. Yeah, I think that there's a lot more birth control sabotage Mm -hmm. than people believe. You know, like, people can poke holes in condoms. They can throw away birth control. Um, I mean, you hear sometimes about you know, current victims in these relationships, they have to sneak their birth control. They have to hide it Mm -hmm. from their, their partners because they know that their partner is going to throw it out. Um, and so this, this stuff is a real reality for a lot of victims who are in Mm -hmm. these relationships because they know that it's a huge, uh, way that their partner can control them because it ties you forever. 
basically. Right, absolutely. So this is this is far more common than I think is talked about a lot. This is I would say this is a very common discussion that we have with the people we work with here. Yeah. It's almost always part of the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, reproductive coercion is very prevalent in abusive relationships. Mm-hmm. Very much so. So naturally these abortion laws are pretty influential in the lives of our clients Mm -hmm. following that logic. Right. Because basically what happens is, I mean, I think the discussion around abortion is like, well, you just need to use birth control. It's up to the woman not to get pregnant. But what's happening is if you're in an abusive relationship, it's not under her control Mm -hmm. a lot of times, whether she gets pregnant or not. And then, you know, if it's not under her control as to what to do about that pregnancy, then she's pretty much at the mercy of her partner. Right. And not to mention the fact that birth control is not foolproof. And even if you're using it correctly, it still has a a small chance of failure. And a lot of domestic violence victims, part of that reproductive coercion is coercive sex, which I don't think a lot of victims feels rises to the level of being sexually assaulted. In my experience, a lot of women who I've talked to have said, well, I wouldn't call it rape or sexual assault but like yeah I mean I have like if I don't have sex he'll keep me up all night arguing about it and so you know that's part of it too is even if even if he's not sabotaging her birth control and she's able to use her birth control if it fails there's still I mean there's still a pregnancy there and what what does she do about about that And so I think that this is just relates to that bigger conversation about how when women in in our clients' situations choose, feel that they have to make the choice to access these services, you know, people are coming to that choice in a lot, a lot of different circumstances. And it's really hard to put legislation on something that is so gray, you know, and and different for for so many folks. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's important before we discuss further to acknowledge that pretty much all of what we've been talking about so far and what we will be talking about is the negative implications of anti-choice laws regarding abortions as it, as it impacts uh, victims and survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. And we've made this decision to talk about this on a podcast because we feel like whether or not you're um, pro-choice or pro-life, you should have all of the facts about how this is going to actually impact people in real life when you're making that decision as to, you know, how to feel about these laws and who to vote for. Yeah. Yeah. Education is power. And so we want to give you guys a little bit of the education or power that I think most people don't have access to. So this is just another perspective to add to your toolbox when you're considering these things and when you're uh, living your life. And I think for me, when I watch the news and there are people on the news discussing abortion legislation, this is part of the conversation that really doesn't, it gets left out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for me, it's the most important part of my life. Mm-hmm. Because of my work. And so I find it concerning and unfortunate that when when people are debating abortion laws and talking about abortion laws and the implications those laws have on 
people in general that there isn't a real discussion about what does that look like for women who are in abusive relationships? What does this look like for sexual assault survivors? Because we hear like, well, this law makes makes exceptions in cases of rape and incest. And then it kind of just like it, that is said and then it just they keep talking about something else. And so, you know, I would I would like to because we know that so many women are impacted by gender based violence. And that, you know, a large percentage of women who are in domestic violence relationships and who are sexually assaulted have to face the reality of pregnancy, mm-hmm. that these things aren't talked about more mm-hmm. on a, on a broader, like more, I don't know, public, public yeah. level. Yeah. And I think also it's important, it's important to acknowledge too, that like, at least in my time providing advocacy services, I have never once heard a survivor of domestic violence that had children with her abuser say, I wish I'd never had these children with him. Mm-hmm. It's always... Um, you know, basically it's always complaining about like the lack of support in the custody system and mm-hmm. the the fact that the abuser can still basically find ways to control her through the children. But I've never actually heard a survivor say, I wish I had never had this kid with him. It's always lamenting the other ways that, that they can use the child as a tool, basically. And I think we've heard two survivors say I mean, I have. I don't know if you guys have. Fair and I talked about this a little bit, but there we've had we've had people that we've worked with or known in our lives that have said, you know, if I would have gotten pregnant in this relationship, in this terrible relationship that I'm either currently in or was in, that abortion would have been the best choice for me. Mm-hmm. Would have been the only safe option, whether for me or the baby. You know, a lot of we talk all the time about how survivors know best whether to leave whether to stay they know the intricacies of their relationship and I would I would say strongly that they know what's best for their child I think it's hard to say looking in a relationship that is violent you know what what to do yeah I've also I definitely heard survivors say who did not have a child with their perpetrator thank god I did not have a child yeah with him because they know they know how much more difficult it would have been to a get away and also be um be able to move on and i've also heard survivors who um had miscarriages with their perpetrator um talk about you know of course having a miscarriage sucks um but that in a way that they're grateful to have not had that permanent tie so there's a lot of feelings that survivors have about not having children with them or having children with them. Mm-hmm. And I think feelings, no matter what feelings are valid. Right. Right. So this is what we are seeing because most of you that are listening don't have your kind of boots on the ground in this population. And so we're passing along what we see working, working with these survivors and working with these clients. And this is, pretty much the consensus um, that that we have, that we get from clients. I, I do wonder if it might look different in other more progressive areas of the country as far as the percentage of clients 
that have children with their abusers. Um, because I know that, I mean, I'm from California, so, and from a very progressive area of the country. And, and I know that things like access to birth control and, and access to abortion is a lot easier over there. And also the belief that it, that that's an, that's a viable option is also more prevalent. Whereas in Wyoming, there's more of a traditional family value system that's in place as far as, you know, the woman kind of staying at home and being the stay at home mom and, and having children and being pro-life. And so I do wonder if, if that impacts the amount of um, clients that we see that do have children with their abusers. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Yeah, I don't know about that. But I don't remember, there's not been very many instances where I've, I've heard a survivor talk about how she did have an abortion. At least a survivor of domestic violence. Yeah, I don't know either. I hear frequently about miscarrying yeah. due to physical abuse. But yeah, I don't that know. happens all the time. Yeah. Which is traumatizing in and of itself. Right. Right. I think the one... I'm trying to remember if this was in Utah or Wyoming. I can't remember. But I think one the one conversation I've had about this in like very like an applicable way, like... I was talking with a survivor and and she was saying this is what happened and she was saying that she chose to get an abortion because she thought that was her the healthiest option for her and her child and because of how severe the abuse she was experiencing was it was a really crazy situation and so she chose to get an abortion and her perpetrator found out about it and it was kind of like this oh you want an abortion huh well I can take care of that for you and then the the physical violence that ensued caused her to miscarry as a punishment mm. for that, Ugh. which is terrible. That's awful. Yeah, it was terrible. Yeah, I can't. I can't imagine having to make that kind of decision when you're more into a committed relationship because, so. As you guys know, I'm a survivor of domestic violence, and very, very early on in that relationship, like within the first month, I discovered that I was pregnant, and I had to make a hard decision at that time. But I can't, and I and I chose to not. Um, I chose to have an abortion, and I talked with my partner, who I did not know at that time was abusive, and he wanted me to keep the baby, and. At that point, I was like, I only, I've only known you for a month. <laughs> right. Um, and so I made that decision to not keep it, and we ended up staying together for another two and a half years. But if I had to make that same decision even six months later, I think that would have been ten times more difficult, and I honestly cannot say what I would have done in that situation. I would have probably have, have kept it. Because at that point, he had so much more power over you. Yeah, and also I was more, I, I mean, I had moved with him. I did not know anybody, like I did not have any social support. Um, so he had really effectively isolated me from people that I could have a real like critical thinking conversation with about that. And um, 
and I was more in love with him. Like I genuinely, like I genuinely believe that we would be together forever. And I think there was even a point in our relationship where I'd even like rehearsed the scenario of getting pregnant again and what I would do. And I made the decision that I would keep it. Mm. Um, but I don't know at what point that had happened in my head. But yeah, I, I can't imagine making that decision when you're more financially and emotionally invested in somebody. Yesterday, I reached out to Lundy Bancroft about this topic, um, and he told me that he sent me an email and said that research shows that abused women are more likely than other women to be forced by their partner to carry a pregnancy to term that they wished to have terminated early on. Mm -hmm. And that they're more likely to be forced to terminate a pregnancy by their partner that they wanted to keep. So basically what he said was that men often have a hand in determining what that process is going to look like for a, a survivor. So basically it takes way. away their choice. Totally. Way. Totally. Yeah. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of times even the access to these laws, there's already a barrier there. Yeah, access to abortion. There's mm-hmm. a huge barrier. The women that I know who have had abortions, most of the women I know who have had abortions in the context because of their abuser did so without him knowing. Right. They didn't tell him they were going to do that because he didn't know they were pregnant yet. See, and then... Which this- that's terrible. Because imagine going through something like that alone mm-hmm. without your partner's support, without being able to tell him or anybody, because what if he finds out? So. And this is the part that, that really gets me is, and we'll probably talk more about this later, but we, we decided to podcast on this because yesterday Farron and I were talking. Was it yesterday? Yeah, yesterday? yeah. And we were like, in the case of rape or incest, mm-hmm. what does that mean? Mm-hmm. You know, what, and what does that look like? And we realized that we didn't have as much information as we wanted. And so we decided to do a little bit of digging and reach out to some, you know, experts in the field. And then uh, that's why we're sharing this information with you. But my problem is that in the case of rape or incest, so much of the sexual interaction that you have when you're in a domestic violence relationship can be classified as sexual assault. Yeah. You don't have... You don't have the power to consent. You don't have the power not to consent. It's just a really messy situation. Mm -hmm. And there's no way that you are fully, like, fully eager to say, like, I want to have sex right now. Mm -hmm. This is what I want to do. And and there's no, there's very few times where you can say, I don't want to have sex right now and have that be respected or even feel safe enough to say that. And so in the context of these, these bills that are being placed that say, like, with the exception of rape or incest, this gets really complicated for me in the context of domestic violence because if you are in a domestic violence relationship and you you feel that abortion is the best choice for you and so you go, well then how how is that sexual assault classified? Do you do you go and you report it or what and are people going to believe that because marital rape is so messy for so so many people so to me the way that you're describing it and I totally agree with you it seems to me like you're talking about a situation that's similar to when an employee has a sexual relationship with their with their boss because their boss 
has authority over them. Like there could be positive or negative implications if they have a relationship with them, but do that, does that employee really feel like they have an option to say no? Like even if they may engage in that relationship willingly at first, like, are they really able to provide full consent if this other person has so much power over them? Right. And that's what happens in a domestic violence relationship is one pow- one person has all the power in the relationship. Right. And it could be, it, it could be like, I'm sure let's have sex. I'm consenting to this because I know what's going to happen if I say no and it's not going to be good. And so that fear based, like, okay, let's just, it's better than the alternative. That truly, that's not truly consenting. Like, no. you, that's not, that doesn't count. So when that happens, what rights do they have to an abortion? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That, this, is, this is the most complicated aspect of this for me. Well, so I guess we can maybe talk a little bit about rapists' parental rights and exceptions for rape and what, you, what kind of proof you need in order to have an abortion after being raped. Based on maybe these some of these new laws that are in place, maybe we can go go through some of these and look, depending on what state you're in, what does this mean? So right now, from what I see, the only states that allow exceptions for rape and incest are Utah, um, Arkansas, and Georgia. A lot of these these other states that have recently, this anti-abortion legislation, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine states currently, most of them do not allow exceptions for rape or incest. So in that case, they have no rights. They have none. Okay. Yeah, they, they all, I think they all offer exceptions for the life of the mother, but not, which, which in my understanding is like a life or a death situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but they most do not offer exceptions for rape or incest, which for me, um, you know, as an advocate and as a sexual assault professional, I kind of see the exceptions for rape and incest as fluff to make people feel less crappy about the law. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit. Because I don't really know what that means. Like, as a, as a sexual assault professional, I'm kind of like, what is that? What does that mean? Because... Like, logistically. Who decides? Yeah. Like, who decides if someone was sexually assaulted? Mm-hmm. Um, we know how messy the criminal justice process is. So I reached out to a Wyoming state legislator who um, is a friend of Safe Project. And, you know, he said, really, in, in most of those states, the gold standard would be a, a charge, a criminal charge against that person. So not a conviction, because that would not be adjudicated till the pregnancy was completely over. Yeah, full term done. Right? But... Um, you know, I report he's charged criminally charged with what first degree, second degree, third degree, misdemeanor, sexual battery. Is there a, cause rape is a felony crime, right? Not everybody who commits oh. rape is charged with a felony crime, right? So like some saying, people are charged with unwanted mm-hmm. touching or, or misdemeanor battery. Sexual so you're battery. saying a rape occurs and very, very frequently, the charge is less than sure. that because rape is a, a rape real, is a real charge. Serious like that felony is a felony. Crime. So yeah. and so, so many people, when they are charged with something that should be rape, it is like so. What? Yeah. What's the threshold? Is it? Because rape is like a pretty. I mean, 
So rape is pretty specific. And so I'm just, I'm curious, like, what is the threshold for that charge? And then would they be allowed that same access based on a lower charge? Right. And because, and Georgia's law says, as long as the woman files a police report. So if they make it, at least Georgia makes it a little more specific than Arkansas and Utah, because they're there, from what I understand, saying, like, if a woman is sexually assaulted and ends up pregnant, she can go to law enforcement and tell the police that she was sexually assaulted and then she can get an abortion. Um, again, I see that as very problematic. Yeah. But at least they have some specifics on how that is how that process looks some for action steps. Because my, my 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 question and my concerns are is in these states where there are these exceptions, are those is that process being? And I guess my I maybe have my questions answered if I called like a rape crisis center in Utah and asked like. Are advocates and sexual assault response people and law enforcement, are they clear on what that process looks like for yeah. a client who might be pregnant as a result of a sexual assault? Because it just seems very vague. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, sexual assault is the ultimate, the ultimate act of taking away a person's power. Right. Right. And so, you know, now we're basically, we know that, only like 31% of women report being sexually assaulted, which is very, it's very low. Mm -hmm. And so now we're basically saying like, in order to get an abortion, you have to make a report. Well, and so that's taking away more power, right? From Mm -hmm. her. Also, are you saying that 30, what did you say? 31, 30% of of women report being sexually assaulted out of a hundred after being sexually assaulted, not just like 30% of the woman population. No, 30% of sexual assault survivors actually make a report. Right. And very few of those reports ever lead to a criminal charge or a conviction. Nine cases out of every thousand are actually referred to prosecutors. And And so then if you, if you live in a community where your prosecutor is a huge goon and doesn't believe women, you know, right. and law enforcement isn't really up to speed on how to do investigations, Which then are, you're not going to get a charge. Unfortunately, it's not super uncommon. No. This happens all the time. And so you're not going to get a, you're not going to get somebody charged. So I guess for me, I just see those, those, well, you know, cause I, I often hear that. And, and I will say that when I was keeping up on all of the abortion legislation with Alabama, you know. I was seeing Republican um, politicians and congressmen out going, whoa, like that is, that is way over the line. Like we believe in making exceptions for rape and incest, you know, because Alabama said flat out no exceptions. For me, I'm kind of like, what? I don't know. That that doesn't, I, I don't know what, does that make, I don't understand. Is that supposed to make me feel like it's, this is less crappy? Because it doesn't. Because well, I don't understand the process. And it, it just, it's bothersome to me because depending on who you make, the the one, the so the legislation that requires a charge, a criminal charge, it it's worrisome to me because it's like, depending on who you report to, what time of day it is, who you get, who yeah. all of That's these totally people are, control. like, it might go away your way, sure. it might not. Sure. Just like, any sexual assault survivor that reports rolls the dice yep. on whether this will work out for them. Mm-hmm. And we've talked a little bit about that before, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, and so to tie these two really messy things together seems terrible to me. Yeah. 
And back to what I was saying before about the domestic violence thing, it's like, if you are in the middle of a horrific domestic violence relationship, you have no power and you, you have no control, you live in fear of what's going to happen, like, what are you just going to do? Bebop down to the police station and say, sorry, my perpetrator raped me. I need to get an abortion. Otherwise, I might actually die. You know, I know my relationship and he could kill me. Is that survivor going to feel safe enough to go and make a report? No. Because she could get killed for that. Yes. And in that case, so, okay, so, okay, all right, all right. So she goes down, one option. She goes down, she makes a report, she's my perpetrator raped me. Well, then you get into this whole thing, like, if you're in a relationship with somebody, can you be raped? That's a whole thing. And I assume in these really conservative states, that's going to be a tricky conversation. Or my bet is she does not feel safe enough to say, my perpetrator assaulted me, because that's not going to go her way, most Mm -hmm. likely. So her option then is to go and say, well, somebody, somebody raped me, I don't know who it was. So then what happens when her perpetrator gets wind of that? And now she, who I assume would not ever believe in sexual assault, says like, oh, you've been sleeping around and now you're calling rape. Well, I had a client one time who was sexually assaulted while she was in a DV relationship. And when her perpetrator found out that she was sexually assaulted, he beat the crap out of her. That's what I'm saying. He strangled her. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So this is what really makes me concerned. Yeah. It's concerning because it's very vague. Right. And when I talk to people who, you know, who chime in that like, well, but there are exceptions for rape and incest, or this person believes in exceptions for rape and incest as a sexual assault professional, I'm going, well, that doesn't, I don't know what that means. I just think if we can't figure out how to effectively charge and prosecute sexual assault at an adequate level right representative of how much it's happening Mm -hmm. then how are we going to add other stipulations that are far more complicated and expected to work Mm -hmm. do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. because when you get that like if in georgia for example and i would love to call like the georgia coalition and ask them which is maybe the next step which is maybe my next step because i'm curious like when you go and you file that police report where does it go from there right do you take your police report to an abortion clinic and say, hey, I have a police report. I file a police report so I can get an abortion. Do you take it to a judge and then a judge? I mean, what is... And what is the obligation of that officer who took the report to investigate it? Because we're lucky here in that, you know, people can make non-investigative reports, but what is the obligation of the officer in these other states Mm -hmm. to follow up with that? Because it could like you mentioned earlier, could be a not safe situation for them to make a report if they have to investigate and ask the perpetrator. Yeah, so that's on one end. And then on the other end, if it's just a bad cop, who's to say, like, if I go and report sexual assault to a bad cop, are they going to really, like, take me seriously? Or are they just going to say, have a, have a good night? Not to mention, it can take a really long time to get a police report. Because often police reports are not completed and given to records and given to victims until the case is closed. And so if they're, you know, if you're making a police report and then they're going to do an investigation, you may not have that police report for, I mean, for a while, not probably not like months and months, but weeks. And, 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 you know, that can be problematic. Yeah. We have worries. Yeah. 
We do. And I think that, like, again, this goes beyond just, like, what Livy, Brittany, and I believe about abortion or mm-hmm. being pro-life. And, and it's, it's, these are just, these laws have real-life consequences for people. And it goes beyond just, like, well, you had sex without a condom, too bad. Like, it goes beyond that. Like, That's there are, people's lives are at stake. And when you have law, like, I would just, I would just really encourage you, if you are someone who believes that exceptions for rape and incest are important, that you get clarity from your mm-hmm. legislators on what that process looks like mm-hmm. so that you're clear on that. Because I'm sure the people who are listening to this who believe that that's important, who are pro-life but believe that exceptions for rape right. and incest are important, which I think most pro-lifers believe, right. probably are saying, yeah, I guess I would really want to know like what the access would look like and what that process would look like. And I'm not sure I'm clear on that. Because none of us are. Because we're not. So I would recommend well, getting and clarity. Then, and then I also think that this has unintentional consequences. Mm-hmm. Because I think that it's hard to report sexual assault so frequently for fear of not being believed. Mm-hmm. That's a huge element. Sure. So if you are from a state, one of these states, that requires a police report or a charge or whatever, how many law enforcement professionals in these states are going to become more and more jaded at sexual assault reports, mm-hmm. right? Because we already know, studies show, science shows, that a lot of times if you go and report a sexual assault, you're not going to be believed. Or, quote unquote, there won't be any evidence mm-hmm. to cooperate your story. So how much is that going to be influenced by these abortion laws? And how many officers are going to assume that more people are seeking um, abortions? And, and maybe not being 100% truthful mm-hmm. about a sexual assault that occurred. Yeah, there's already misconceptions and myths out there about the number of false reports mm-hmm. of sexual assault. And right now, and this is this is very... A common opinion is that sexual assault is super highly reported. Right now, it's not. Did I say that wrong? Um, super highly su- falsely, falsely, falsely reported. reported. Yeah, I was like, that came out weird. Okay misconception, sexual assault is highly falsely reported. That is not true. No, sexual assault is, the false reports for sexual assault are no higher than for any other crime. There are false reports for every type of crime. Mm -hmm. And for sexual assault, it's no higher than like burglary, vandalism, simple battery, things like that. Yes. It's about 5%. Yes, it's pretty low. But if I was a really conservative, uh, police officer who didn't have a lot of experience with sexual assault and being really generous. <laughs> Basically, if I was the worst and I was a cop that, that was not going to believe or me a prosecutor. Or, or a prosecutor, whatever, this, these laws would make me believe less. And I think this is going to have huge impacts for survivors of sexual assault who want to, want to create change and hold perpetrators, perpetrators accountable by reporting at much self-sacrifice, because that's a mess, the reporting process is a mess, I think they are going to be further victimized by this as well. Well, and so let's talk a little bit about the states that don't have exceptions for rape, because didn't you say that most don't? Most don't. Mm-hmm. So so which ones do? Utah, mm-hmm. um, Georgia, and Arkansas. The ones who don't are... Um, 
Louisiana, Missouri, Alabama, Ohio, Mississippi, Kentucky, those don't. And out of those, all of those. Oh, states. looking at these numbers, with the exception of like Ohio, it was not a close vote. Yeah. It was not a close vote. It's like disappointing. One of them was like 26 to 3 or something. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, again, we're we're not talking pro-life, pro-choice, whatever. We're talking specifically in the context of sexual assault here. And so for me, that's that's disappointing to see sexual assault survivors marginalized so much through this voting. And it seems like this is something that people, that the general public really cares about because I see on my Facebook newsfeed all the time, you know, people getting really, you know, ticked off about, uh, about a rapist being granted parental rights to like the child that was a product of his rape and people being just outraged by that. Um, so it seems to be that, you know, a lot that this is kind of close to the heart of a lot of people. So the fact that these legislators were so heavily against that exception is right. kind of surprising. Yeah, but again, I think that I, I really do, and maybe I'm just jaded and, and crabby about the, the whole thing, mm -hmm. but I really do think that throwing that in is just bluff, those exceptions. Because I we know, we, the three of us know what that would look like. Like we know that the barriers to reporting exist and that if our clients had to go through A, B, and C hoops in order to access an abortion, how that would re-traumatize them and what that, what that could mean for them going forward. And so for me, I'm just like, okay, well, thanks, I guess. Do you think that these legislators, because I agree with you. Mm -hmm. ineffective mm -hmm. it's ineffective yeah it's ineffective I just don't think it but matters but I wonder because I think most of the American people don't recognize sure how ineffective that might be oh yeah because I'm positive that most people listening to this are like oh yeah didn't even think about that just yeah. because they don't have access to that information sure like unless you're entrenched in this work you don't know how sometimes truly hopeless it feels sure trying to get trying to get this stuff together and so I wonder if if the legislators are in that same level of ignorance or, and if they actually feel like they are doing something good or if they are just kind of using it as like a bargaining chip mm -hmm. to get people behind them. I have to think that since Wyoming has a coalition that lobbies on behalf of victims and survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault, that many other states, I know that many other states do have coalitions that do the same type of work. I have to imagine that they tried to have I would think some so. input. I would think so because I can imagine, I mean, I know our coalition um, well enough to know that if anti-abortion legislation were brought to Wyoming, that the coalition would be pounding pavement like crazy over in Cheyenne to, legis to lobby for that, to lobby against that because mm -hmm. of these topics that we're talking about. So I would like to think that, yeah, the Alabama State Coalition – against sexual assault or whatever it's called would have done the same the same thing I don't know but I would hope because that's their job I just think it's really hard to do this work and not see it this way yeah not see 
the significant barriers for survivors. Yeah. And it's not about any of our personal choices or beliefs at all. No. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. It's about the fact that we work with people who are impacted by this and we know how complicated this makes their already incredibly complicated lives. Yeah. Incredibly complicated. And it's it's not just, you know, that you're going to have potentially a legal tie to somebody who traumatized you. It's also, like, especially for for survivors of sexual assault outside of the context of a, of a romantic relationship, um, if they don't have the option to do anything else, if they are forced to carry to full term, then they have to deal with a constant reminder of their trauma. Mm-hmm. And I know that there are survivors that choose to have that child. They make that conscious decision. But I can't imagine being forced to make that, you know, to make that decision in the first place of, um, you know, that knowing that this child is a product of something that was so violent and traumatizing to you and that you would have that reminder for the rest of your life, whether or not the father is in the picture. Well, and even, and, and that's one aspect of it. And, and another that I'd like to bring to the table is like, if I am a woman that's in a domestic violence relationship and I become pregnant, I, I think a huge amount of my thought goes into the fact that, like, if I am, which this is not an uncommon situation, if I'm receiving physical violence weekly, some of which includes strangulation, some of which includes, like, being pushed down the stairs, like, that is not, that is not the kind of life I want my baby to have, even just in, in utero, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And that I think so much of my thought would be going to that, like, how much how much safety does my baby have right now in the safest place you know like i am the mom i am i am safe i'm a safe person for my kid and at this moment where i am the most safe person for my child the ba- this baby's not safe and let alone when you when when you have the baby and and you have so much less control over what your perpetrator does or does not do to that child you know what I mean? I think so much of my thought would go there. Yeah, and even if you do decide that you want to leave the relationship because you don't want your children to be exposed to that anymore, then you're kind of in a catch-22. Um, like what Lundy Bancroft said the other day, that you know, you're know you pressured to leave that relationship for the safety of your children, but then usually, almost always, the perpetrator, the abuser, is granted parental rights mm-hmm. and usually has unsupervised visitation with the children. So then you're faced with the choice of either staying and being able to monitor and, you know, kind of provide more protection to your children or leave. And then the child gets unsupervised visitation with somebody who's abusive. And how many times do we hear about women being murdered during exchanges? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, there was one, um, last week, the, the national coalition against domestic violence posted something last week about a, 22 year old girl who was stabbed by her ex her ex-husband during when she went to exchange with him Mm -hmm. with their son i mean that happens all the time it's all the time so and i think it i think this you know what we always say as advocates is that nobody knows an abuser better than his victim like nobody knows your situation better Mm -hmm. than you do i've said that 
so many times to women. And if my client gets pregnant and tells me I can't have a baby with this person, then she knows her situation better than anybody does, better than a state mm-hmm. legislator does, better than I do, better than a doctor does. She knows what she needs to do for her own safety. And so we know we know that to be true. So we're basically, these laws are basically, you know, like we're all, we're talking out of both sides of our mouths. I know. <laughs> if we're telling women, like, you know what's best for you, you know what's best for you. And then if you get pregnant, hmm sorry, you have to have that baby because I think then just more of that power and more of that knowledge is being taken away from her. And let's all that aside, the fact that like some of these states aren't even making exceptions for incest blows my mind. Yeah. Because what is incest? Incest is an 11 year old girl being raped by her uncle and getting pregnant. And if you're going to sit here and tell that child, that parent of that child, that your daughter has to have that baby in at Alabama 11 years old. at 11 years old because she was sexually abused by a creepy uncle. Where, where is the humanity in that? You know, like, what is that? And what kind of proof is needed for that? And, and what kind of like proof is needed for that? They could do a DNA test, at least in that situation. I don't know. That 11 year old probably that, And not consulted. that early on. And not that early on. Oh, Libby. I don't think they could do a DNA test at eight weeks. I think that would involve amniocentesis or some kind of, I mean, I just, I don't know. Like, I just think like, whose life, you know, like that's, that's when we're talking about like incest and children being abused and victimized and little girls being impregnated by really scary family members who, you know, hurt them and take advantage of them. And then those girls, those children are being forced to carry those pregnancies Whose life? That's my question. I think that even if after knowing all of these impacts on victims and survivors that, you know, being forced to carry a pregnancy to full term can have, if you are still 100% pro-life, then I think that you should also consider providing more support and services that can help survivors um, not be so trapped in abusive relationships mm-hmm. and so that they can actually successfully keep their children safe from these abusers. And themselves. Yeah. And that, and that means being more supportive when they're in those relationships and believing them. And also a significant shift happening in child custody courts because it's, mm-hmm. I mean, it happens all the time that, that perpetrators are given a ton of parental rights, despite all of the research showing that it's a tool used to continue to abuse the, the other parent and the, the detriment that it can have on the children. Mm-hmm. And so they, these survivors just need a lot more support if, I mean, they already do now, regardless of, of abortion laws. But if you are really just, you know, hardline, you know, pro-life, then I just really encourage you to think about other ways that that you can support victims and survivors. Yeah, I think that's fair. No, I agree. It's a tough topic. Yeah, it really is. It's a tough topic. And I think that a consequence of having of doing this work for a lot of people, not everybody, but for a lot of people, is that 
I always think about everything in the context of how will this impact victims. Every law, every legislation, how will this impact victims? And so when I hear about anti-abortion legislation, all of my personal feelings about those things go out the door and all I'm thinking is how does this impact survivors? Yeah. What does that look like for, for those women? You know, and it's, it's tough to talk about and people have vastly different opinions and I doubt any two people have the exact same opinion right. about this topic because it's really tough and I get that. But, you know, as victim service providers, we can sit here and just say, this is just what we know to be true about trauma and about the impacts that these, these types of laws have on women who are victims of domestic violence and sexual violence. And so I just think it's really important that when you're, like you said earlier, Brittany, when you're making decisions on who you're going to vote for and when legislators are making decisions on what laws they're going to vote for or against, that they have all of the information. Mm -hmm. And this is really important stuff to think about because this is people's safety, emotional safety, physical safety. And so it's really important to think about this stuff when they're making those decisions and when you're at the polls voting for for candidates, I think. Yeah, I agree. You need all that information. I agree. And like Libby said, like you're not going to think about this stuff if you're not a survivor yourself or if you're not working with mm-hmm. them every day. You're not – I didn't think about this when I was – 21 and you know in college and when when people would talk about abortion and exceptions for rape and incest I never thought like about the stuff I've said today ever I wouldn't have because I didn't I had no context for that right and so I feel like it's my responsibility to talk about that to people and to share my experience I think that something I've been seeing lately with the introduction and passing of all of these abortion laws is um, an influx of posts on social media from women who had to make really hard decisions and their personal stories. And so if, if you listeners are interested in, in reading about some of these women's experiences with making that decision um, or, you know, deciding to keep a, a pregnancy to full term, then I highly suggest that you join the, the Facebook group Pantsuit Nation on Facebook because there's a lot of really um, touching posts on there. And some of them are about making the decision to terminate, but others are talking about how they are actually the product of a rape and that their parent their mother had to make a really hard decision. Um, so it's, you know, kind of stories about both sides of things. Um, so I, I suggest that because yeah. I think hearing personal stories can be really yeah. impactful. Well, and we know that that happens on our podcast too. Our most popular episodes are survivor stories. And so I think it's, it's easy to, to look at all of this on paper and say, Whatever you're talking about, whether whether you're thinking about these abortion laws or whether you're thinking about domestic violence stories, sexual assaults, uh, I don't know, paleontology, I, I don't know, everything. It's easy to look on paper and say, oh, okay, this makes sense, I get this, this is, this is what it is, this is what it isn't, but I think it can be so impactful hearing people's experiences firsthand. Um, and so that's part of 
why I think we wanted to share this is because we have firsthand experiences working with survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence. And, and we wanted to give you this information because I think it can be impactful and I think it's important that people have all the information. Um, so if you're listening to this, hopefully you learned something new or you're thinking about something in a little bit of a different way. Um, I don't know. If you want to call and debrief about it or if you have more questions about what this might look like in the lives of survivors, please call. You know that we have an open phone line policy. <laughs> you can always call whether you need support, whether you need information, whether you need help, whether you want to talk about it. Give Safe Project a call whether you're in Wyoming or not and, and we can give you a call. Yeah, we can we can connect mm. you with the right resources. Yeah. Our hotline number is 307-745-3556. Yeah. 24-7. We're always here. Even Christmas. Yep, even Christmas. Hopefully, if you want to reach out about this, you do it before well, Christmas. preferably don't call on Christmas <laughs> if you just want to talk about this topic. Yeah, you know, like 7 a.m. Christmas morning. <laughs> Opening gifts. Yeah, I, I had a thought. I have a thought about this anti-abortion stuff. Well, thank you for sticking through this kind of... Hard, hard conversation, sure. I will say. I thought it was hard to talk about. So um, thanks for sticking through it. And again, reach out if you have questions. And have a wonderful, wonderful, have a wonderful day. wonderful week.